We have a playground in our backyard, and uh, it's been a desire of Deidre's and mine ever since we moved into our house to put wood chips down in the ground of that playground there because it looks better than the mud that's there right now. However, there's also a creek in our backyard that is prone to overflow its banks, as Northern Virginia creeks are apt to do. And we have discovered through multiple attempts at this that uh, when the creek flows through our yard, it washes away everything we put down on the ground under the playground. And so despite our best intentions of wood chipping that ground repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly, that it will always wash away. In fact, we have discovered there is no quicker way There's no more sure way to ensure that it will rain and flood in Northern Virginia than for my wife and I to wood chip our backyard. So on her behalf, I apologize to you for the rain the last few weeks. (laughs) Sitting up on our patio, we'll often look at the muddy pit back there and say, we should put some wood chips down. Normally it's me that says that and she'll say, oh, it's just useless. We've been looking at James chapter 2 the last few weeks, and what we've seen here is that faith without works is useless. The person who says they have faith but does not follow Christ might look pretty for a moment on the outside, but doesn't have even a, a little modicum of roots to withstand the slightest rain shower in life. The slightest breeze of this world would sweep their so-called faith away into oblivion. That kind of faith, that is what James here sarcastically refers to as faith alone, or the person who says he has faith that does not have works, or the person who says, I believe that God is one, that kind of faith is fruitless. It's useless. It's pointless. It's worthless. Faith without works is as good as a blockbuster gift card. (laughs) Faith without works is as good as a camouflaged golf ball. I saw one for sale this week online. A camouflaged golf. Who would hate life enough to buy that kind of thing? (laughs) James is combating really two errors when it comes to faith and works. There are those that say that works can save you. This is probably the typical Jewish teaching of Jesus' lifetime, and it came in all sorts of of flavors. There's no simple way to view the way the, the Jews viewed salvation. Everything from if you did enough good works, you could earn salvation, to because you're descended from Abraham, as long as you're circumcised, you're a part of that covenant family, and you're on your way to salvation to you know, you just have favored nation status, so to speak. There's a whole kind of rainbow of approaches to salvation inside of Judaism. But what most of them had in common was this idea that your works, everything from just superficial circumcision to actual keeping of all of the Torah, could merit you salvation. James, of course, says that wrongly divides works from faith. After the resurrection of Christ, it was a typical Jewish teaching that uh, Jesus was optional. As long as you kept the law, you could keep the law, some people would say, in Christ or outside of Christ, it doesn't matter. They divided faith from works. 
And James, of course, rejects that and calls it an error. Faith without works is dead and useless, he says. There's another error. He deals with it just briefly in verse uh, 18. It's more common in American evangelical world, and that's the, the error of kind of superficial faith that says, not superficial works like many of the Jews had, but superficial faith. It says, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe in the, the death of Christ on the cross. I believe in his resurrection. I assent to its truth. I consent that it is true. The evidence is overwhelming. I believe it and calling that saving faith, which it most certainly is not. That error also separates faith from works. That error says you can have this faith, but it does not change your life. It, it does not produce a life of works. It's just this mental assent. In fact, there are those that go so far to say that you have to separate faith from works, otherwise you commit the error of works righteousness. If, if you say that works are an inherent part of salvation, then you're saying you can earn your salvation, and that's of course wrong. So therefore, this teaching goes, you must separate faith and works altogether so that you see that you're saved by faith that has no works component. And that too is an error. Both of those wrongly divide faith from works. Now the reformers uh, thought that you could combat both of these errors by viewing saving faith somewhat holistically with three different components to it. I'm not going to give you the Latin words for their, well, I'm going to give them to you, but I'm not going to put them on the screen because I don't want you to write Latin down at church. That's just weird, but I want you to remember it. So now I, I get that I want conflicting things, but that's okay in my life. The reformer said there's three components to saving faith. There was something called notitia, which is just the content of the faith. Just the content, that's notitia, that, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. That the Son came to earth in a human nature. He's the Messiah, died on the cross for our sins, resurrected from the grave. That's notitia that you just get. That's the content of faith. A second component is essentia, which is just, you would say it's mental assent to it or confirming that. So here's the content, and now I agree that content is true. And that's this demon level faith right there. Demons have all of that. Remember the demons understood the deity of Christ. They understood that he was the Messiah. They even proclaimed that when Jesus was, was on earth. There were demons that, that shrieked out, behold, this is Jesus, the son of the most high God. I mean, demons understood that. Luke says that demons knew he was the, the savior, the Messiah. That's notitia and essentia. And the third component is fiducia, which is that you throw yourself at that faith, that you throw yourself at that content, you throw yourself at your ascent of it, you submit your life to that truth. All three of those together is the biblical concept of saving faith. You take one out and you have only a piece of faith and a piece of faith is no faith at all. Luther said about this, quote, True saving faith, all three of those together, it's living, busy, active, and a mighty thing. It's impossible for saving faith to not be doing good things incessantly. Saving faith does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question can even be formed, it's already done them, <laughs> and it's constantly doing them. Close quote. In other words, Luther says, the person with saving faith doesn't wake up in the morning and say, what must I do to earn salvation? Because before he can even contemplate that question, he's already doing all the good works that are in keeping with salvation. 
Because true saving faith, it's compelling. It's world-changing. It's life-altering. It's access-tilting. True saving faith rocks your world. It takes you from death to life. True saving faith is not some kind of mental ascent similar to what the demons have. True saving faith is not something superficial that can be conjured up like some kind of spell with a a muttering of the lips. True saving faith, it's the Holy Spirit who hits you and brings you to life and regenerates your heart and seals you and dwells in you and compels you and conforms you and you're doing stuff. That's the Bible's description of saving faith. And faith without that interaction, faith without that supernatural element, faith without works is empty. Are foolish, dead, useless. And this is what James is describing in James chapter two. I'm gonna read you our text for this morning. It's James 2, verse 20 down through 26. And I'm gonna draw your attention to three verses as we read through it, verse 20, 24, and 26. I'm gonna read the whole thing, though, to set our minds here in God's word. James asks this, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled. That says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, key verse. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, listen to this, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's useless in verse 20. In fact, it's a pun in verse 20. Faith apart from works is useless or workless would be a way to translate it. It's a, it's a play on the Greek word. That faith without works has no work. In English, the best way to say it is faith without works is workless. It's vain. It's vanity. It's nothing. Now, James has been arguing this for several weeks now in our calendar, or 20 verses on his calendar. He's been going after this idea that you can be saved by some kind of superficial faith that is mental assent or consent to the truths of the Bible without a trust that alters your life, without works, in other words. In verse 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? And picture the eye roll. <laughs> can faith without works save? Yeah, right. And he gives you a compelling word picture in verses 15 and 16 of the person from uh, church who's abandoned on the side of the road, naked and starving to death, and you walk by them and you see them in desperate need and you say, hey, I got faith without works. Good luck, my friends. <laughs> What good is that interaction to that person who's dying on the road? It's not good at all. That is as good as faith without works. It's offensive. It's against the covenant nature of God's family and of the gospel itself. That's faith without works. 
In verse 18, he talks about a person who says, hey, some people have faith, other people have works, you know. Put them together, you might get a full picture, but we all don't have the full thing, and James disputes that. And says, stop dividing the two of them. That's, that's demon talk right there in verse 19. And at least dem- demons have enough sense to tremble before God. So I feel like James has made a pretty heavy and significant and solid, compelling, convincing case that faith should not be divided from works. I feel like he has a slam dunk argument here. But he has a question for us in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, and again, he's arguing with this imaginary, fictitious interlocutor in his mind, this adversary he's inventing to be his foil here. He's talking back to him in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So after this strong argument, he has a question for you. Do you want to be shown again? You want another argument for why you shouldn't separate faith from the works? You want one more argument, he's asking? And judging by your presence here this morning for a sermon on James 2, I think you would say, yes, I do want another argument. Sign me up, Pastor Jesse. I would like one more argument that faith from outworks is dead. So I agree. I'll give you one. In fact, James is going to give you two. He's going to throw in two arguments, two for the price of one here. And that's how he's going to round out this chapter. But first, he calls his interlocutor, this adversary in his mind, the person who says faith, you can have faith without works. He calls this person in verse 20, a foolish person. You think you can have faith without works? James says, oh, you foolish person. That word foolish is a very interesting word. It's often translated as empty, uh, void, vain or vanity sometimes. Um, I like the idea of empty-headed. That's why it's translated foolish here, but it's the idea that you have a thought in your mind and we go to look for the thought, can't find it. (laughs) It's empty-headedness. So James is saying, you want to be shown you you cannot have faith without works? Oh, if you think contrary, you are empty-headed. Again, he's not being mean to a real person. He's invented this fictional adversary. He's being mean to his fictional adversary. (laughs) This is the word that's used in the parable of the vineyard owner who sends his workers to collect rent from those who are keeping the vineyard. Remember, the first worker comes and gets rejected. The second worker comes and gets beat up. And a third worker comes and gets, gets killed. And they sends a fourth worker, gets spit on. And another worker, imagine being that, that fifth worker at this point, really. <laughs> but he comes and he also gets beat up and sent away empty-handed. That's the word. Sent away with nothing in his hands. Maybe you've been in this scenario where you've forgotten your wallet for something. You're there and you got all the kids there and you make the order and you go to pay. and It's a foolish feeling, isn't it? Thank you for those who've lent me money in those kind of scenarios before. <laughs> it's just shallow. and I mean, can't you think? Can't you have some thought in your head. Couldn't you have seen that when you make the order, you will need the money? That's this word. Oh, you foolish person that thinks you can have faith without works. So, what's his argument? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, this argument confuses people Uh, This has been a source of debate between Catholics and Protestants 
for 500 years. I'm not going to deal with that much today. Speaking to those who are listening online right now, if that's the topic you're interested in, I would look at last week's sermon on James 2, 18 and 19. That's where I talked more about the Catholic understanding of this verse. I don't want to repeat all that today. But I do want to say this. It's so helpful to remember the timeline of Abraham's life to make sense of this passage. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, first of all, Abraham is called our father here, not because we're Jewish, of course, although many of James' readers were, but because Abraham is the father of those who have faith. That's how he's often described. He's often thought of and described that way in Galatians. He's the father of those who have faith. And it's not that he's the first person in the Bible that had faith. I mean, Adam had faith when he responded to God's call and had his sin covered. Noah had faith to go against the stream of this world or the flood of this world when he built the ark and, and believed that God would send a flood. I mean, there's been others with faith in the Bible by Abraham, but Abraham is the most complex and comprehensive picture of saving faith in the book of Genesis by far. He was the father of Israel the father of the Jewish nation that produces the Messiah. And so it's very fitting to say that Abraham is the father of those who have faith. You are children of Abraham, even if you're not Jewish, you're children of Abraham because you have the faith of Abraham. And Abraham's faith was in the promise that his descendant, one of his descendants, his seed, would be the savior who would bring peace to the nations, crush the head of the serpent, a serpent as prophesied in Genesis 3, and would bring the covenant to the earth that would take away our sins. That's the promise. And when you place your faith in that, you in that sense are a child of Abraham. We've got songs about it and everything. James here says that he was justified, even though he's the father of faith, he was justified by works. Now justified means to be declared righteous by God, to have your sins forgiven, for God to take away your sins, declare you not guilty in the area of sin, and then to give you an act of righteousness, to declare that you are righteous and to change your nature so that you are becoming more and more righteous the longer you live in faith. That's justification. Abraham was justified, and you so badly wanted to say, by faith alone, without regard to works. <laughs> He says, was Abraham was justified by his works. When? When he sent Isaac to be sacrificed. So let's rewind the tape in our minds and go back to Genesis. When was Abraham justified according to Genesis? Well, it was early on. It was when he believed God, he left his family, and he, you know, his extended family, he left his country and he trusted God's promise. God promised him several things. He promised to give him an heir. He promised to give him the land of Palestine. He promised to do what was right to him. He promised he would do a blessing to the nations. And Abraham believed that. That's described in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Genesis 15, I believe it's verse 6, says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham was saved by his faith in Genesis 15. Isaac is not even born at this time. Remember, this is at the beginning of the Abraham story. This is before the whole Hagar debacle. <laughs> This is early on, before Isaac was a glimmer in his father's eye, Abraham was already justified by his faith. So the kind of works righteousness understanding or the Catholic understanding of this passage that Abraham was, that this is teaching Abraham needs works to be justified makes just, 
no sense. It makes a huge hot mess of the story in Genesis if you say he's not justified until chapter 22 when he offers Isaac because he was, he was justified decades earlier by his faith. So what is James doing here? Bringing up Abraham's work that was part of his justification when he offered up Isaac decades after he was justified by his faith. Well, he gives us some clues here. Verse 22, you see that faith was active. That word active here, it's the, the Greek word uh, syn- uh, synergia, or which we get the English word synergism from. Faith was working with his works. Think of Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you and through you to will and to act according to his good purposes. It's the same concept there. You are working out your salvation because God is working in you. God works in you, you work it out. It's synergistic. Your sanctification is synergistic. God and you both working. Salvation is different than that. Salvation is monergistic. Salvation is God working, you getting in the way. (laughs) Sanctification, synergistic. God and you together working out your salvation. That's the image here used in James 2 with faith and works. That faith and works have a symbiotic or synergistic relationship. Faith and works are working together in Abraham's life. Well, what are they working for? It says in verse 22, faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. In other words, faith and works were together energizing Abraham's life, making him do stuff, compelling him, dragging him along from the earth, from the land of the Chaldeans in Genesis 12. Faith is dragging him along from there all the way through the decades, all the way through watching Sodom and Gomorrah burn down through the hill, saying goodbye to Lot, all the way to the promised land, out of the promised land, to Egypt, back and forth. Faith is dragging him everywhere, but it has a destination in mind. If you're a dad without the mom home, as is my scenario uh, this weekend, my wife is out of town and I have the kids, uh, you understand there are two different kinds of walks that can be helpful in your family. One is the walk to everybody out of the house, we're going for a walk, I don't care where, we're moving. <laughs> and we will come back here in an hour, let's go. There's no goal to that walk, that's just parading around the neighborhood. There's a different kind of walk. Everybody out of the house, we're going to the park. Everybody out of the house, we're going to Starbucks. Everybody out of the house, we're going to the playground of the church. Let's go. We're moving. Now there's a goal to this walk. And it's in everybody's mind. We've got an agenda. We're going somewhere. That's the image here in this verse, that faith and works were conspiring together in Abraham's life to bring him to his destination. Now, what's the destination? Well, that's what's talked about in verse 21, the offering of Isaac on the altar. Now, why does James view that as the destination of Abraham's faith? Because think of what that taught. So much of the Abraham narrative in Scripture begins with God's call to him, but it builds towards the sacrifice of Isaac. And of course, you know the story. Abraham goes up on the mountain. He's supposed to sacrifice Isaac, who's not literally his only son. There's Ishmael as well, but Isaac's the son of the promise. Abraham knows that. He goes to sacrifice Isaac. The Lord stops the sacrifice, replaces him with a ram. The ram is sacrificed instead. They worship God. Three days later, they come back to the the world. There's a renewal of the covenant. 
What does this teach? Why is this the pinnacle of Abraham's faith? Why is this called the destination or the completion, is James's word, of Abraham's faith? Because in this story, you learn that God is pleased by a sacrifice. You learn that the sacrifice has to be an only son. You learn that God will provide the sacrifice because he's not gonna take your son. You learn that the sacrifice will be a substitute. He will tag in and you will be freed. The sacrifice will produce a covenant and that the sacrifice will resurrect after three days. All of this is taught. So Abraham was justified by faith, but it's a faith that's pulling and dragging and compelling him to this understanding. That true saving faith is in not just God, but the fact that God will give a substitute. The substitute will be an only son. He will be a savior. He will resurrect. He will bring with him a new covenant. And of course, that's the main point. Hebrews 11, Paul describes it this way. And by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Hebrews 11, 19, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did when he received him back. Do you see how that's the goal of Abraham's faith? Abraham's faith is teleological. It's in the end of it. It's in the death and resurrection of the Son of God as prefigured here on Mount Moriah, the same place where Jesus would be crucified, by the way, thousand years later. All of this is a big arrow towards the gospel. That is the relationship between faith and works. And that's why it says in verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled. This was the point of the promise to Abraham. And notice the scripture is quoted. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15 verse 6. Again, decades before the Isaac on the altar. Abraham's justification by faith alone was pointing forward to the event that would happen decades later that would be brought to Abraham through his own faith and works working together. That's the nature of saving faith. It's always pulling you. It's always pointing past you. It's always going over to the Messiah all the time. And it's dragging you along with it. That's what saving faith is like. And that's why, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I mean, imagine if you are gonna stand here and say, I believe you can be justified by faith that is alone. Remember the phrase faith alone here, James is using, I think, a little bit sarcastically. It's in reference to the person who says, I don't think you need works because I have faith alone. Okay, you wanna say you have faith alone and you're justified by your faith alone without works? Who teaches you that? Where did you learn that you can be saved by faith that does not have any works? Who in the Bible shows you that? Does Abraham? No. Abraham had faith without works, of course, but it was faith that produced works in his life. That's the point of the story. Think of someone who had saving faith without works. You don't have a list. So this idea that you can be saved by faith that doesn't have works, it is a novel concept because it's not biblical. You want to come up with someone with faith without works in the Bible? I've got a few. Balaam had faith and no works. Judas had faith and no works. But of course, they're not saving faith. 
No, the kind of faith that Abraham has, it's saved by faith alone. In other words, the faith alone is what is meritorious. The works are not meritorious. But it's faith that is not alone. It's not alone. It's working towards something. People point to Romans and say, that, hey, in Romans, Paul says Abraham is, teaches us that salvation does not come by works of the law. That phrase of the law is important, not by works period, but by works of the law. But justification is by faith, not by works of the law. They're not contradicting each other. Paul also understood that faith is at work in you and pushing you to something greater and beyond you. I mean, for, for example, that story in Romans 3 and 4 where Paul's talking about the sacrifice of Abraham and, and Isaac, he, Paul talks about it there too. Remember how he ends that in Romans 4. He says, therefore we are justified by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Romans 4.24. So even Paul understood we're saved by faith alone, but it's faith that's an arrow to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith without works would be like a non-resurrected Jesus. Don't divide faith from works. That's the point. Which part of Abraham's life was faith and which part was works? Is there even a way to answer that question? Which things that Abraham did could you say he did out of faith and which things that he did could you say he did out of works? How, how, how? Here's a question. Earlier today, we gave an offering. We talked about African New Life Ministries, training up pastors and all this, and it's an amazing ministry. And let's say you put $100 into the offering plate for this, 100 bucks. Which part of your offering did you give because of your faith? And which part of your offering did you give as a work to help actually train pastors in Africa? Which part? I mean, did any of you think in those terms? Of course not. It doesn't even make sense. And how would you even begin to divide it? Would you say, I'm giving you $50 because of my faith and $50 to actually do the work of the ministry? Oh, no, I, I'm saved by faith alone, so $100 because of faith. And, ooh, but I want them to do something. It's just, it's a nonsense kind of question. You can't divide it. That's what Abraham teaches us. You cannot divide faith and works. Now, when it comes to salvation, your works are not meritorious. Remember, your works just get in the way. But when it comes to the essence of saving faith, you better believe that saving faith has the energy inside of it to produce works in your life. And if you have a kind of faith that does not produce works, you have a useless kind of faith. I can almost picture the objector, though, going, okay. James, you make a pretty strong case of the whole Abraham thing. I'm with you. But, a retort, if you will. Abraham was the father of the Jews. He had all this revelation from God. God was talking to him. He's a friend of God. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's not your average non-Christian in the world. Like, think of the most morally destitute kind of person in the world, the lowest of the low. You give them the gospel. You can't expect that they're also going to have a faith that has works in it, can you? I mean, I get it when you're talking about a Jew and somebody with the Old Testament and the Torah. I understand, James. But what about the lowest of the low? What about some pagan Gentile leading an immoral life? Do you think she needs works for her salvation too, James? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Verse 25. 
In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? Really? Rahab the prostitute? I mean, that's just gratuitous. You don't need to throw in that tidbit. It's not like we're going to forget who Rahab was. <laughs> James throws in that little descriptor because he is making this contrast between Abraham and Rahab. Listen, let this hit you. There are two polar opposites in this passage, Abraham and Rahab. These two have almost nothing in common with each other. Nothing. Abraham, Jew, obviously, Rahab, Gentile. Abraham, male, Rahab, female. Those are the obvious ones. Abraham, a Chaldean, Rahab, a Canaanite. Some beyond the, opposite, uh, the obvious ones, though. How about this? Abraham was powerful, Rahab powerless. Abraham was wealthy, Rahab in poverty. Abraham was moral. I mean, so self-righteously moral that his hypocrisy got him into trouble. What a contrast with Rahab, who was, as James mentions, a prostitute. Abraham had direct revelation from God. God talked to him. Rahab had rumors from field workers in Egypt that ran away. <laughs> Abraham had a promise from God to give him a nation. Rahab had a promise from God to destroy her city. Abraham was powerful and had servants. Rahab was dependent upon the mercy of others. In every single point, Abraham and Rahab are opposites because in them they cover all of mankind. They cover every category of human is seen in Abraham or Rahab. They have nothing in common with each other except for one thing. And that you see in verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab justified by faith. I mean by her works. Well, you got to go back to the timeline again. Go back to the Rahab story in your minds. I'll flip there. You don't need to flip there, but I will. Joshua chapter 2. The spies come to Rahab. She's in Jericho. God's going to destroy Jericho. That's a given. It's already been said, so that's settled. Spies come into Jericho to spy it out. They got to figure, I mean, they have the promise, but they don't know how it's going to work out. They go to Rahab's house. Rahab receives them into the house. Her house is on the wall. This is a good place for the the spies to spy out. (laughs) And spies come to her. She receives them. And then she says to them, Joshua 2, verse 9, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon us. All the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, she says. In other words, all the people she knows are afraid of their God. That's the the broad kind of faith. Everybody there, they know the content of their, they know who the Israelites are and they're afraid of their God. Now listen to Rahab's words. We know how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. And when we heard about it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any of us because of you. Now this is Rahab's confession. For Yahweh, your God, he is the God in the heavens and above and on the earth beneath. So please, she says, please swear to me by Yahweh. I will deal kindly with you. Please deal kindly with my father's house. Give me a sign. The men make a deal with her. When was Rahab justified? Well, it was there. She's expressing her faith in God right there. 
She has not sent the spies away yet. She has not uh, sent them out of the city yet. That has not yet happened, but she is expressing her faith in God at this point, a faith that has zero works that are meritorious to it. She's not earning her salvation. She is saved just like Abraham by the merit of her faith, not by the merit of any works. Neither of them had any at that point in the story. But what kind of faith does she have? It is the faith that will produce works. She sneaks the spies up onto the roof, sneaks them out, tells them to hide, wait three days, after three days, the spies can figuratively speaking resurrect and they can attack the city and, and Rahab will be spared. There's a red cord going out the window. I mean, it's, again, it's a big arrow pointing the gospel, the three days in the grave, the red cord out the window. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to miss. <laughs> what is her faith like? It's her faith justifies her, changes her life, changes her life. And produces good works. In fact, think of it this way. What do Abraham and Rahab's faith have in common? I mean, I know this both in Yahweh. But what else does their faith have in common? There's one key part. Please don't miss this. In fact, if you hear anything today, hear this. What Abraham and Rahab's faith have in common, both of them were willing to walk away from this world, to walk away from their families, to walk away from their possessions, to walk away from their life. Both of them were willing to let it all burn if they could follow God. And Abraham did watch it all burn. Remember on the mountain, he was begging the angel, please spare Lot, please spare Lot, please spare Lot. And then he watched it burn to the ground because he trusted God. Abraham lost everything in his life, but was a friend of God in that. He, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham loved God more than the promises. Abraham loved God more than his son. Rahab, same way. She was willing to watch her whole city come down brick by brick her family die, her culture ends with them. She would let it all go if it meant that she got to be a friend of God. That is the biblical picture of saving faith. It's the kind of faith that counts the cost and says, I know what I'm leaving behind. It's the faith the rich young ruler did not have who went away sad because of his possessions. It's the faith that the beggar has who will leave it all to follow Jesus Christ. That's saving faith. So imagine hearing these two stories of Abraham and Rahab and responding to it and saying, oh, that's works righteousness. I believe you should be saved by a faith that does not have to produce works to guard ourselves from the error that saving faith does indeed produce works. I wanna stay far away from that. So in my scheme, saving faith does not produce any works. That way I can say you're saved by faith alone. I would just say that's not the way faith is presented in the Bible. It just isn't. 
The Bible presents that kind of faith like verse 26 does. The body from the part from the spirit is dead. Faith without works is as useless as a body without life. A tree without fruit. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works, you could say it this way. It's like a blind bus driver. I mean, what good is a blind bus driver? But go on a little bit. If he does get in the bus, something bad is going to happen. (laughs) Do you want to follow him into the bus? Because if you do, it will harm you as well. That Luther quote I begin with goes on. Luther says, whoever does no good works is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither whether faith, knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and about good works. If you know somebody who says, I have faith, I'm just not following Christ. Here's a question for them. Do you know what a good work is? What's a good work? And if they answer with something that's not a good work, they're speaking from their ignorance and they're as ignorant about good works as they are about faith. But if they say something that is a good work, your follow-up question, at least what James would probably ask them, is why would you not do it then? And the answer is because they don't really have faith. You should be so thankful to God that he has given you a faith that works. That he's given you Jesus Christ from the dead. The body of Jesus didn't roll out of the grave three days later. No, the body of Jesus came out alive. And that's the kind of faith you have. Faith that makes you alive. Not dead faith. Living faith that is active and that compels you and drags you and controls you and leads you into a life of good works. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us the kind of faith that transforms and saves, the kind of faith that builds our life. We throw our feet at you. We throw our lives at, at you. We throw our hearts at you. We throw our hands at you. We want to follow you. We want to walk with you and do your will because we trust ourselves to you. We know that you don't give a dead faith. And you give a living faith to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted you with their life, I pray this morning they would open up their hearts to you. They would throw themselves at your feet. We know that for those that come to you, you are faithful and just to forgive them of their sins. And so I pray this morning that our congregation be filled with people whose hearts have come to you. You will never cast us out. You give us a life of good works to do. We give you thanks for this. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. 
But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.